Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15. Somebody asked me this week, how long have you been teaching in Revelation? And I couldn't remember, so I went back and looked, and we started this a year ago, September. So um, this is, this is uh, sermon number 42, and we're at chapter 15. So we only have about 100 to go. Now, Revelation chapter 15. And let me make this comment before we begin reading through this chapter. It's a very short chapter, only eight verses. But there are a lot of people, Christians included, and some pastors, who all they want to talk about when you talk about God is God's love, God's mercy, his forgiveness, his patience. And we should think about all of those things, but that is not all of who God is. Out of God's holiness comes those things, but out of God's holiness also comes his wrath and his judgment. And so to talk about God's love outside of the context of God's wrath and judgment would be doing a disservice to our Lord because we need to see him as he truly is and fully is in all of his nature, and his wrath and his judgment are part of that. He must judge sin. We know that. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That was the judgment for our sin. He took it for us so we wouldn't have to go through it. But there will come a time when God's patience runs out, when his mercy ends, and we're going to be looking at the beginning of that today in chapter 15 at the end of the tribulation period. People will have have exhausted God's patience. And the final fury of his wrath is poured out upon the earth in the seven last trumpet judgments. And so this, this morning, that's what we're reading, the introduction to those seven trumpet judgments, I'm sorry, the seven bowl judgments, those last judgments of God that are going to be poured out on the earth in the last days of the tribulation. And so let's look together at chapter 15 and just follow along as I read. The Bible says, starting verse 1, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked. And behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who live forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we will look further into this passage this morning. 
Our God in heaven, we just pray again as we come before you that you would help us to submit ourselves to who you are, to your authority in our lives. Lord, you've given us your word to teach us things about ourself, things about you, things about the world we live in, even things about the future as we look forward to what you're going to accomplish. And Lord, here we read about the judgment and wrath that you will pour out on the earth in that end time. But Lord, I pray that you would teach us from this what kind of people we would need to be today, seeing that judgment is coming. And so, Lord, we just give you ourselves. I pray that your spirit would do his work in us and open our hearts and minds to receive the truth that you have for us today. Lord, we want you to accomplish your work. And so, with that request, Lord, I ask that you would use me during this time, that you would speak through me your truth, that you would fill me with the spirit Give me your strength and your wisdom and your words to say so that we might be challenged by you today. And may your word accomplish its work as it goes forth now. And we thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to remember back for a minute chapter 14, if you will, the last section of chapter 14 we finished With the harvest of the earth, there were two harvests there that were delineated in Scripture. The general harvest of people because of their sinfulness on the earth, it's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period. And then the specific judgment of Armageddon when Christ will return and destroy all the armies of the earth in one fell swoop. What we find here in Revelation 15 is the beginning of that general harvest. It is the last judgments of God poured out upon sinners upon the earth in those last seven years of the tribulation. This is the end of that period that we're looking at right now, just before Jesus Christ returns to earth physically. And in chapter 15, what we have is an introduction to those last series of judgments known as the vile or bold judgments. Remember back In chapter 6, we started reading about the seven seals of the book that are opened by Christ. And in those seven seals, judgments begin to be poured out in the earth through the tribulation period. As we got to the seventh seal, there was a pause, and then seven trumpet judgments began. And seven trumpets, as they were blown, unleashed seven more judgments upon the earth. And then in chapter 11, we read about the blowing of the seventh trumpet by the angel. Let me just read that to remind you where that left off, because that was quite a while ago. In verse 15 through 19 of Revelation 11, it says, The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, Healings of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. So what we saw in chapter 11, as chapter 11 concluded, was a summary of what we're going to see in the seven 
bold judgments that are about to be unleashed. And chapter 15 is an introduction to those bold judgments. Okay? We've been waiting for three chapters to see what these judgments are going to be. What are these seven last judgments? Now, I don't mean to introduce, uh, to, I'm sorry, disappoint you, but this chapter is not going to tell us what those judgments are yet. You'll find that out in chapter 16, specifically what those judgments are to be. Here we have an introduction to those judgments. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you. Okay, but as we engage with chapter 15 today, we open literally the last scene of earth's history before Christ sets up his millennial kingdom on earth. And so what John records for us here in chapter 15, he starts with a sign that he sees in heaven. Now we've seen three signs, or this is the third sign, but he introduces us here with this sign in heaven, and he says there's seven angels with seven plagues. That's verse 1. And then in verse 2 through 4, John describes a host of victorious saints in heaven as these judgments are unleashed. And then in verse 4, I'm sorry, in the last four verses, verses 5 through 8, John gives us more details about the appearance of these angels and the judgments that they carry. So it's kind of an introductory summary of the judgments that are about to happen in, in chapter 16. But these are important here to understand what we see in chapter 15. So looking at chapter 15, we are getting to the end of the tribulation period. These are the last series of judgments, of God's judgments upon the earth. So we start in verse 1 as we're introduced to these judgments, and it says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the last seven plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now, in this verse, John says he sees another sign. As I mentioned, this is the third sign in Revelation. The first two we saw in chapter 12. That was right after the seventh trumpet is blown, and then we take a step back, and John gives us more information to fill in the gaps of what's been happening. And in chapter 12, we have the first sign is the woman, and that represents Israel. The second sign was the dragon. That represents Satan. In chapter 12... That those signs are given to us for help, to help us understand the struggle of Satan to try to thwart God's plan all through history by destroying God's people, specifically Israel, and by interfering with the Messiah being born in Jesus Christ, which he was not able to do. Then Satan wanted to kill the Messiah, which he did, but that actually accomplished God's plan and redemption. And now Satan continues to struggle through the the current age and trying to distract men from the truth and draw them away from the Savior Jesus Christ. His his object is to blind people, to um, dissuade them from the truth. And that is the struggle. And he has attacked specifically Israel in doing that. And so that's chapter 12. This is the third sign that John sees. And here it is the angels, seven angels coming forth from heaven with seven final plagues, the final judgment of God that's going to be poured out on the earth against sin. And he says this sign is great and marvelous. The words in the Greek here that he uses first are megas. We know that word. We get the word mega, huge, big, enormous. Okay, megas, that's that word great. And then the second word is thumastos in the Greek. That means um, amazement. 
So he's saying, this sign was huge, it's immense, and it amazed me. It's just unbelievable what I'm seeing here. Because it is important what's about to happen. John is overwhelmed, in a sense, by this vision because he realizes now through this vision what God is going to plan to do at the end of the tribulation period in these judgments. He uses these terms to express the immensity of its sign, its magnitude being related to to the fact that this is God's last act of judgment and wrath on the earth before Jesus comes. And it's important for us to grasp that. He says, then this angel, he sees seven angels. Now, we've seen angels all through the book of Revelation. But in today's mindset, many times when we talk about angels, we think of God's angels being protective. They care for us. They provide for us. They protect us. Okay? I've talked with many people uh, who have been in car accidents or something happened in their life. And they say, well, obviously God's angels were protecting me or the Lord was protecting me through his angels. And it's true. God does send his angels to protect us and to care for us. He has angels that are assigned to Israel. Michael, the archangel, his assignment is to protect Israel during their period of history on earth. And so God's angels usually are associated with protection, with care. Here, they also are associated with God's judgment. They are the instruments who carry out God's judgment on the earth. And it's not just here. If you go all the way back to Genesis, Remember, it was the angel that evicted Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden after they sinned and then stood at the entrance with a flaming sword to keep them from going back in. Okay, so angels are also used by God in judgment. That's what these angels are. In Psalm 91, verses 9 through 12, the Bible says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil will be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the psalmist recognized the the protection that angels bring, but we also need to recognize the judgment that they bring from the throne of God. And so God here uses his angels in carrying out judgment uh, judgment at the end of history. Jesus alluded to this in Matthew chapter 13. He said in verses 41 and 42, The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's actually the angels at the behest of God who will harvest the earth in a sense, who will take sinners and put them in their eventual place of torment for eternity in hell. They are carrying out God's judgment upon the earth. So that is part of their duties. And here, these seven angels appear out of heaven, bearing with them seven plagues that are the judgment of God on the earth before the final wrath of God is poured out. Now, these seven plagues that they carry are the final judgment on a disobedient world from God. It's God's judgment against sin. Now, the word plagues is used here. When we think of the word plagues, usually our first thought is to go back to the ten plagues of Egypt, right? Moses went in, told Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh hardened his heart many times. And so God sent plagues to Egypt to show Pharaoh that he was wrong, 
to demonstrate God's power, to demonstrate who he was. Now, these plagues were not all sicknesses. Remember, some of them were frogs, some were flies, some were lice, some were hail. Okay, so plagues was not referring specifically to his disease. That's what we necessarily associate it with today. If you go back in history, we think of the Black Plague or the Black Death that happened in the 1300s. It killed um, more than 100 million people. So when we think of plague, we think of disease, but there's a lot more than disease that's going to happen here. And so I want us to understand what these plagues are. The word in the Greek is plague. It means a stroke or a blow causing a wound. So it's not specifically a sickness or a disease, but it's a blow to mankind on the earth that harms him in some way. It could be his provision, and we'll see that as we look at these last seven plagues, if you will, next time. But it's a blow that causes men to lose something. It could be their health. It could be their provision. It could be their security. It could be something but it's an effort to get them to pay attention to God, to stop looking at what they've got their security um, uh, put in on this earth and to look to God as their deliverer. And that's what these plagues are about to do. They're to bring God's judgment. Now, God uses this same term plagues in a warning to Israel earlier in their history. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 21, this is what God says. If you walk contrary unto me, And will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sin. And then he goes on after that and says he will bring wild beasts into their their midst that will destroy their crops, their land, and their people, and will destroy their children. So God says, I'm going to bring these plagues. He uses that word plagues, but then he talks about wild beasts coming in to destroy Israel. And that has happened in the history of Israel. God has destroyed their land. Remember when they went into the land of Israel, it was a land flowing with milk and honey? And look at that land today. It's mostly desert. Now, they've done some great things with technology and irrigation to bring uh, productivity back to the land, but it's nothing like what God wants it to be. But it's because of their, their disobedience that that has come upon them. So the seven plagues are severe catastrophes that are going to cause death, but they're much more than just disease. That's these plagues that, the, that these angels bring out of heaven. And then it says that in these plagues, the wrath of God is filled up. Now that word, the, the term filled up here, some of you may have different translations. It may say finished or completed, and that's what it means. This is the last act of God's wrath upon the earth, these seven plagues. And when these plagues are poured out, when these judgments are poured out on the earth, God's judgment to mankind on the earth will be finished. But that means there will be no more unrepentant sinners left. God will eliminate them from the earth at the end of these judgments. The only ones who will be left at the end of these judgments are those who have trusted Christ, who have received him truly as the Messiah, and when he comes back, they will go into him, with him, into his kingdom for a thousand years on the earth. But all those who do not trust him, all those unrepentant sinners that are left on the earth through the tribulation period, at this time God will harvest them, as we saw last week, they will be killed through these plagues. This is the last harvest of sinners from the earth. 
And that's what this word plague is. And when it says God's wrath is filled up, it is God's last act of judgment upon sinners on the earth. Now, it's not speaking toward their eternal judgment. It's what God's going to do in causing suffering and causing torment on the earth because of their sin. Now, Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. So we all deserve to die. And all sinners now, as then, who are unrepentant in their sin will die. Physically, but also spiritually, for eternity. The means of your physical death, obviously, is a fear that many people have, even Christians. My dad used to say, you know, I'm not afraid to die, I'm just afraid how I'm going to die. And he, and he, he would talk about, this was back in the 80s, and now I'm dating myself, but when the Cold War between the United States and Russia was going on, and there was all the talk about nuclear missiles being launched at each other. And my dad said, well, if they launch a nuclear missile, I want it to land right here, because then it'll be done and I'm in heaven. Okay? So he wasn't afraid to die, but we all wonder, how are we going to die? None of us really want to have a long, drawn-out period of suffering before we go to heaven. We know death for believers is a portal to enter into the presence of Jesus for eternal joy and perfection after that. But for unbelievers, the suffering of death now is just a very mild introduction to the eternal suffering that they're going to go through in hell. And so these plagues give us a sense of the suffering that God is going to unleash on earth that even how bad it will be, as we'll see in chapter 16, it's nothing compared to the torment of eternal death and hell for those who don't repent. But this plagues, these suffering here, is the end of God's wrath on earth. God will not unleash his wrath upon unrepentant sinners again. It's filled up. It's completed here in these seven plagues. This is the final, most severe outburst of God's wrath against sin of all history as this time of the Gentiles, the time of man, comes to an end in, the, in this end of the tribulation. So here's the sign that John gives us in, cha- in verse 1. The seven angels bringing the seven plagues that will be the completion of God's judgment on earth. Verse 2, he begins talking about the victorious saints in heaven. These are saints who have gotten victory. They're going to be watching this judgment. They're going to be witnesses to the judgment of God. Verse 2, it says, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, them that had gotten the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So first John sees the sea of glass. Now this is not something that's brand new here. We saw this before in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 6, John says, And before the throne of God there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. So it's the same sea of glass. So what John is seeing is this scene in heaven before the throne of God. It's this floor or platform on which the throne of God rests in heaven. It's... Uh, described as here being a sea mingled with fire. Before it was just described as a sea of glass, clear like crystal. Here it's described as a sea of glass mingled with fire. In Revelation, we have seen lots of allusions to Exodus, okay? Going all the way back into Israel's history. We've seen uh, allusions to the plagues. We'll see it again in chapter 16. Remember the ten plagues in, in uh, Egypt. 
We've seen allusions to Moses. We talked about that. We're going to talk about it again here in this chapter, the Song of Moses that these saints will sing. Uh, We've seen many references to the temple and the tabernacle. Again, here we see that. And we see references to the cloud of God's glory. And again, here we see the smoke of God's glory in the temple. Okay, all of those are, are the substance. This is the substance. What Israel saw was just the picture, the symbol of what was the reality in heaven. But we've seen all these allusions to Israel's history, to what we see and read in the book of Exodus. And here again, there's this sea of glass. It's a picture, in a sense, of the Red Sea. Or actually, the Red Sea is a picture of this sea, because this is the reality, not what we see on earth. Everything here is just a picture of what God has in heaven for us. And so we have a picture of the Red Sea. Now, for Israel, what did the Red Sea represent? It represented God's conquering of their enemies and their deliverance. God's conquering of their enemies and their deliverance. And that's exactly what the sea of glass in heaven represents for believers. God's conquering of their enemies, sin and Satan, and their deliverance from the eternal punishment of sin. And so that's what we receive in heaven. That's what this sea in heaven represents. It's the the crystal clear glass. Now, it says as a sea. It's not liquid. It's a solid That's what is going to be there like a crystal because a liquid sea will change. Some days it has waves, some days it's smooth. You never know what to expect. In fact, as we lived in Michigan for almost, I don't know how long was it, 18 years altogether, we had lots of opportunities to go visit Lake Michigan. We were right near Lake Michigan there. And You never knew what to expect on Lake Michigan. It's described as one of the most dangerous bodies of water in the United States because storms can come up in an instant and you have no no, uh, warning beforehand. But there were days we went out and there were waves that were six, seven, eight feet high with white caps battering the shore. And then the next day you could go out and you could look across and it was like glass. It changed day to day. You never knew what you were going to get. In heaven, it's not going to change. God's deliverance and protection are finished, completed. That's what these plagues are going to do. They finish the judgment. As God brings his saints to heaven, that deliverance is finally completed in heaven. And so his deliverance and his, his protection, his provision for his saints will not change after that. It's solid. And that's what this sea of glass represents, his deliverance and salvation of his saints. It's the pavement upon which the throne of God's rest because that is what we see in heaven. Ezekiel saw this same vision. If you read in Ezekiel chapter 1, he describes this sea of glass. Moses saw this sea of glass in Exodus chapter 24 when he went on Mount Sinai with Aaron and his two sons and the 70 elders. They went up to see the glory of God and they described this sea of crystal glass that appeared before them where God resided. And now John here sees it for a second time in Revelation. And on it are standing, what John says, those who had gotten the victory, the victorious saints of God. And it says their victory is over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name. Now, we studied all of that in chapter 13. Remember, chapter 13 introduced us to the Antichrist who will come in the end times and the false prophet that will stand alongside him. Between the two, they will 
bring the world together in a one-world government and a one-world religion, both of them against God, fueled and empowered by Satan. In that kingdom of Satan and the Antichrist, people will be forced to bow down to the image of the beast. They will be forced to basically engage in Satan worship because that is the king of the world who will rule during that period. They will be forced to take the mark of the beast in order to buy and sell and get food and and conduct business. And they have to be associated and swear loyalty to the name of the beast. And yet here we have saints in heaven who have gotten the victory over all of that. They did not yield to or worship the Antichrist. They did not bow down to the image that will be in the temple. They did not get the required mark of the beast that would let them buy and sell. They were not identified with the beast by his mark. And they did not identify and pledge their loyalty to him. They are faithful, persevering saints. They're overcomers who are delivered from the final wrath of God. And here we see them in heaven, which means they were delivered by death on this earth. Now we know during the end times, during the tribulation period, millions and millions of people will die at the hand of the Antichrist. In fact, in Revelation 13, we read this about the Antichrist. It was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. That means to kill them. They become martyrs. And here we find them in heaven victorious. Not defeated. They are not defeated by the Antichrist because they were killed, because they were martyred. They were victorious in that martyr's death because they stood faithful for Jesus Christ in the worst of times under the worst of persecution. And God calls them victorious. And they're victorious and they're delivered through death on this earth. God takes them from this earth through that martyr's death so that they will not have to experience the worst of God's wrath that will be poured out on those who are left. David Guzek says they have belonged to the time when the beast and his image were in power, but they got victory over it. They may not have lived through it, but now they're victorious in heaven. And that's the most important thing. That's what defines us as victorious as saints. Not how long we survive on the earth. It's will we be standing in heaven with Jesus Christ at the end. That's true victory. So spiritually, these saints are victorious. They're the saints who are faithful and triumphant during the tribulation. And here they are gathered in heaven on before on this sea of glass, before the throne of God, to witness God's last judgment upon the remaining sinners on the earth and upon those who persecuted and martyred them. And it says they're harps. They have harps of God. Harps indicate praise, rejoicing, singing before God in heaven. We've seen a picture of the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 5 with harps. They fell down before the lamb and worship him who is worthy to take the book of God's judgment. And it says those elders have harps as they praise the lamb who is about to execute judgment upon the earth. 
Now, these tribulation martyrs, then, that we see here in chapter 15, are added to that number of those given the blessing of worshiping God in heaven, not just because of his deliverance, but because of his judgment of sin. Now, you can read all through the Psalms. Psalm 94 focuses on God's judgment of sin and sinners. It is a, is a uh, rehearsal of God's promise that he will judge sinners. And the psalmist, as he wrote that psalm, probably was undergoing great turmoil and persecution in his own life, and yet he wasn't looking at the temporal, the temporary life that he was living on this earth. He was looking forward to God's final deliverance and victory when he got to heaven. And he says in Psalm 94 that God will execute his judgment upon the wicked. And here, God is finally about to execute that final judgment upon the wicked. And these martyred saints are rejoicing in heaven because of it. Because of God's judgment, not just his deliverance. What are they singing? Because their prayers for vengeance upon their enemies is about to be answered, they're singing the praise of God. Remember, we saw back in the in this fifth seal, the martyred saints under the altar of God, asking God, how long, how long are you going to allow these people to go without being avenged for our death, for the sin that they've committed against you, O Lord? And God's answer to them is just wait until the number of the martyred saints is complete. There are still those who have to die in their faith, who have to be delivered to heaven before that judgment is going to be executed. And here now, the saints, all who died during the tribulation, are singing the praise of God because that judgment is about to come. It is the answer to their prayers. We saw that last week in the harvest. Remember, the angel that harvests the, the grapes of wrath, of God's wrath, that take the armies of the world and toss them into the winepress of God's wrath, and they're trampled, literally, he comes from the altar. That angel comes out from the altar where those prayers were offered. And so God's final judgment is an answer of these saints' prayers. They sing the song of Moses in verse 3 and 4. Now, most commentators agree that it's called the song of Moses because it's a song of God's deliverance and judgment. Again, an allusion to the Red Sea, similar to the song that Moses sang after all of Egypt's armies were, were destroyed by God miraculously by God. And so it's a song of deliverance. It's not the exact same words, but it's got the same sentiment. It's got the same message in it, that God is a God of deliverance, but he's also a God of judgment. And frankly, we saw that back when the, the uh, 24 elders sang God's praise. He will judge his enemies. We see that every time there's worship in heaven, that God will judge his enemies. He will judge sin. And so we can't praise God fully in just recognizing his deliverance and his mercy and his love. We also have to recognize his judgment of sin because he is a, ju a just God. He's a righteous God. He cannot tolerate sin. And here the saints are singing this song not just of deliverance but also of judgment, God's judgment upon his enemies. And he says it's also a song of the Lamb. It's a song of the Lamb because it speaks of Christ's redemptive work and salvation and Christ's ultimate triumph over sin as he prepares to set up his millennial kingdom on earth. 
Look at this song in, in verses 3 and 4. He says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And by the way, there was not many people called the servant of God. We talked a little bit about Moses in Sunday school. But Moses was a faithful servant of God. And he says, the Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Look at the phrases they use here. It's not that they choose to use. It's the phrases of praise that God enjoins them to use. It says, marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. What is he about to happen? God is about to pour out his final severe judgments upon the earth. And they say, marvelous are thy works, O Lord. The next phrase. Uh, just and true are thy ways. Is judgment, is God's judgment ever not justified? Is it ever wrong, not fair? From our perspective, we can claim that. But God is a holy and perfect God. And so anytime he judges sin, God is perfect and right in judging that sin. God is perfect and right for condemning sinners to hell because because of their unbelief and unrepentance. And if the the story stopped there, where all of us would end up in hell because we didn't follow him and didn't trust him, he would be fine. He would be perfectly right in sending every single one of us to hell. And so this severe judgment that he's going to unleash on the earth in this final time against sinners, as bad as it's going to be, they say, you are just and true in all your ways. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? Philippians 2, Paul refers to this act. When Christ comes back after these judgments to set up his kingdom on the earth, it is Christ who will carry out the final judgment and and destroy all remaining enemies of God on the earth. But Philippians 2 talks about Christ first coming as a servant humbling himself, even to the death of the cross. But it also says in verse 9, Wherefore, because he did that, God has also highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Revelation, we have the song of these saints saying, who will not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? And the answer is no one. Everyone will fear Christ in the end, either as their savior or as their judge. And either you will glorify him in the deliverance and salvation he has provided you, or he will be glorified in the judgment that he brings against you in your sin. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Remember back in chapter 6. The end of chapter 6 is, and I've alluded to this, men hiding in hills and calling for the rocks to fall on them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb and from the one who sits on the throne. And then several times through this series of judgments that we've seen so far, we see this phrase, and yet they would not repent 
of their hardness of hearts and their evil. They curse God. They blaspheme God. And it happens again in chapter 16 in the worst of judgments. They will blaspheme God because of the judgments. They don't see God's judgment of sin. What they see is it's not fair, God, that you make our lives miserable, that you've taken everything away from us. We deserve better. That's the lie of Satan, that we deserve anything better than destruction and death. Everything we have that's good is only because of God's grace. And so they sing this song of God, the song of the Lamb and the song of Moses, that God is right in his judgments. They sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And I want you to see something else in this passage, this song. Great and marvelous are thy works, true and just and true are thy ways, who will not fear thee and glorify thy name, for thou only art holy. All nations will worship before thee, thy judgments are made manifest. What do you see there? What's missing? Anything about themselves. This song they're singing is all about God. It's all about Jesus Christ. Now, these are victorious saints that have been overcomers in the worst of earth's history, the worst evil that could ever befall the earth, the worst persecution that will ever come to the earth. These people were faithful. And so you'd think that God would say, okay, these are the best of saints. And you'd think that before God, they would have room to say, even with your grace, Lord, we did it. With your help, we did it. That's not there. They don't talk about themselves at all. They only talk about God. They don't talk about their suffering. They don't talk about their overcoming. You don't even see the prayer for vengeance on their deaths. What you see is God. God. God, you are holy. God, your judgments are right. God, you are the king. All nations will worship you. It's all about God. Not a single mention of themselves. And see, that's the heart of true worship, because when you truly have the heart of worship, you understand that it's all about God. It's not about you at all. I've asked this question before. Why did God save you? If he did, if you're a believer, why did God save you? Now, I've gotten a multitude of different answers for that. Some people think, well, because God wanted me to have a better life on this earth spiritually. Good answer, yeah, your life will be better spiritually if you're saved. Because God wanted to give me the blessings of salvation. Okay, that will happen. But that's not why God saved you. God saved you to glorify himself, period. Your salvation is not about you. Your salvation is about him. And that's why we have the example of Jesus Christ, who made himself of no reputation, became a servant. Why? So that people would see God in him. And that's exactly why God saves us. So people don't see a great Christian or a good person or a wonderful servant. They see an almighty God. That's this song that they're singing. It's all about God. They exalt God as the supreme ruler of heaven and Jesus Christ as the supreme ruler of earth, and it's all about him. Now, verse 5 through 8, quickly, we have the 
angels, seven angels that come out of the temple of heaven. He, John is rehashing. He gave you the introduction of these angels in verse 1. Now he's going to give you more details about it in verses 5 through 8. After that, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. The seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. One of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So out of the temple, John sees this vision again. He says, After I saw the saints standing on the sea of glass before the throne of God, singing this song of worship and praise, then I see seven angels coming out of the tabernacle, or the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. Now, the tabernacle was the tent that God gave Israel to worship in, okay? That was that, uh, their, their, what do you call it, mobile temple, if you will. Okay, they could fold it up and take it with them wherever they went in the wilderness. But God gave them instructions. This is where you will worship. This is where my presence will be in the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And... That was not the substance of the tabernacle. That was a picture of the tabernacle of God in heaven, the temple of God in heaven. And it says the tabernacle of the testimony, because in that tabernacle were kept in the Ark of the Covenant, God's covenant with Israel, his Ten Commandments that were written on tables of stone that will not change. And so it's called the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. But seven angels come out of the temple in verse 6. These seven angels proceed from the temple. Now remember, in heaven, the temple is God's throne. It's where he resides. That's what the word temple means, where God resides. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul tells us, What, don't you know, as believers, you are the temple of God, that the Holy Spirit resides in you? You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God, glorify him. So the temple refers to anywhere that God resides. And obviously, he resides in heaven. So all of heaven is referred to as the temple here. The angels come forth from heaven, from God's presence, bringing his or doing his will. And it says they're clothed in pure white linen. Their chest girded about with golden bands or girdles. Now, remember, white linen represents God's holiness and righteousness. White is purity. And so they're coming forth in righteousness, not their own, representing God's righteousness and purity. And it's a reminder that God's judgment, as they come forth in judgment, even his judgment is perfectly pure and right. I want you to think about, I'm not going to ask you, how many of you watch superhero movies, okay? I don't want to embarrass anybody. But you think about the superheroes that are presented today in movies and literature. And many times the so-called heroes resort to tactics that are less than ethical because that's the only way they can overcome their enemies. And we justify it in the end because the ends justify the means, right? That's the world's philosophy. And so sometimes superheroes have to act outside the box, have to go a little rogue in order to accomplish their purpose. That's not how God works, okay? God does not become like his enemies to conquer his enemies. In fact, it's just the opposite. God is totally 
different than his enemies, and that's what gives him the power to overcome them. Because they are defined by evil. God is defined by perfect holiness. And so here, when we talk about these angels coming out of heaven, they're not rogue vigilantes. These are the holy servants of God carrying out his holy judgment. And so they're clothed in white. They're given these golden bands across their chest that signify the glory of God. And they proceed with seven plagues. Now, it's interesting. I want you to see this. They come out of heaven with seven plagues. Okay, in verse 1 it says that. The angels having seven last plagues. That's the introduction. In verse uh, 6, the seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girls. So they have the plagues. But what do they not have yet? Look at verse 7. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God. See, the plagues represent the wrath of God. The wrath is God's judgment. That's the worst part. It's not the plagues that are the worst part. It's that they embody the wrath of God. Now, when you are under the wrath of God, that is the worst place you could ever be, either physically or spiritually for eternity in hell. Because God's wrath is not appeased. There's no escape except through Jesus Christ. And these people that are about to experience this wrath of God have continually exhibited a contempt for God and a hardness against him, and an unrepentant attitude in their lives. And so it's this wrath that is the real judgment. The plagues are just the means that God uses to carry it out. And so the angels come out with the plagues, but then this one angel, the cherubim, and if we go back in chapter 4, we understand this, one of the four living beasts before the throne of God gives them seven bowls containing the wrath of God. Now, the bowls that they receive are not necessarily what we would consider as bowls. Some some versions use the word vials. I don't know that that's a great word because vials, in my mind, conjures up chemistry class in high school with the little test tubes, and you had to pour the chemicals in and watch what happened, okay? And then when you had to empty them, you had to pour them out, wait for it to bloop, 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 and it came out kind of slow sometimes. Okay, that's not what these are. What they used in the service of the temple for incense and for what they called drink offerings or libations was kind of a flat saucer, okay? And if you have ever done this at home by accident, where you have maybe a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, which spills over into the saucer, and then you tip the saucer, you don't get a little bit on you. You get all of it at once, and that's the point. These are saucer-like bowls full of the wrath of God, and when the angels pour them out, it's not a drip, 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 drip. They pour them out all at once, and the world is deluged deluged with God's judgment all at once. It's not a slow, well, here it comes, get ready for this. It is by surprise when they least expect it all at once, God's wrath is upon them. And as we get into chapter 16, we will see that it's not just 
pour one out, and let's wait to see what happens. When God unleashes these judgments through his angels upon the earth, they will thrust these judgments one after the other after the other until we go right down, boom, 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 seven judgments right in a row in a very short period that will literally exterminate all the rest of sinners upon the earth. That's this picture of the bowls of the wrath of God. And there's no way anybody can escape or prepare for it. I shared with you in the bulletin a story about my college days. This will prove that I'm not perfect. Okay, we had light bell at 11 o'clock every night. We had to have lights off. Everybody had to be in bed. And so one night, my roommates and I, mostly my roommates, um, decided that we were going to play a prank on our hall leader and we as the first light bell rang, which gave us a minute warning to the second light bell, I didn't do it, okay? But I was part of it, so I'm guilty by association. But they quickly put a wastebasket full of water on top of the door and balanced it up there. And you know how the prank works. It's totally dark. The hall leader's coming down the, the hallway with a flashlight, checking the rooms to make sure that everybody's in bed and all the lights are off. And as he opened that door, we couldn't see it, but we heard it, Okay? And we heard the door creak, we heard the giant splash as that bucket fell on his head, and then we heard the groans. And we paid for it by having to clean the bathrooms for a week after that. But that reminds me of how God's judgment is going to be poured out. It's not a little drip, drip, drip. It's like that wastebasket of water being poured over his head. It's all going to come at once. A flood, a deluge of God's wrath upon the earth. And people are going to be so overwhelmed, they're not going to know what to do. And then finally, in verse 8, he says, And the temple was filled with the smoke of God, the glory of God. From his power, no man was able to enter the temple. The smoke represents God's presence and his glory. It did back in Israel's day. Remember the pillar of smoke, the cloud, that sat on the, the temple of God or the tabernacle at that point. That led them through the wilderness. Pillar of cloud by, night, or by day, a pillar of fire by night. But it represents the glory of God. And here, it says that that smoke of God's glory fills the temple, fills heaven, the temple of heaven, God's throne room, so that, it says, no one is able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels are fulfilled. God's glory is seen even in his judgment. And here, his glory is demonstrated in these judgments and his The smoke of his glory will fill heaven and no one will be able to enter into his presence until that judgment is completed. And yet God does not want to prohibit people from his presence for very long and that's why we know this is going to be very quick and very severe. It's going to happen probably in a matter of days, if not hours, which is overwhelming considering what we're going to find in chapter 16. It's the Shekinah glory of God. In Job chapter 21, verse 30, as we close, Job says this, that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction. They shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. This is the final day of wrath that we see here unfolding in chapter 15 and chapter 16. Now, my prayer is that no one here And no one who hears this message will have to go through that wrath. Because if we trust Christ now as Savior, 
we won't have to cower before him as our judge then. If we trust God to deliver us by his blood from our sin now and from the wrath against sin, we will be delivered from that wrath then. But those people who harden their hearts against God will experience this wrath. And there will be no escape. You cannot escape the wrath of God. You cannot talk your way out of it. You cannot convince him that you deserve something else. We are all dead in our sins. We all deserve hell. And it's only the blood of Christ, as we celebrated this morning, that delivers us from that wrath. Not just the wrath that is to come on earth, but the wrath that is to come eternally in hell. So rejoice as believers in God's judgment against sin. But if you haven't gotten to that point where you understand what Christ did in fulfilling that judgment, then repent today so that you can be preserved from that wrath. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, again, we just praise you for your truth, for your word that reveals to us that you love us, that you are a merciful God ready to forgive but that those who reject that mercy, reject your love, will experience the fullness of your wrath. Lord, may you preserve all of us from that. You've given us the channel for that in Jesus Christ. He is the only way that we can find life with you. And so, Lord, I pray that every single one here will submit to the authority of Jesus Christ in their life, will accept his sacrifice as good enough for their sins because there's nothing we can do to atone for ourselves. Lord, may your spirit convict all who need to be convicted, all of us in our sin, and may we truly be repentant as we come before you in worship. Thank you again for your word, for all that you've taught us today. And may you be glorified as we live. May people see you in us as we go from this place. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 395, Only One Life to Offer. 395. It starts.